thank you all for coming. Welcome to everyone in the room and those watching remotely. Thank you. Um, I'd like to introduce Dr. Garrett Wasp, the first of our series of three senior hematology oncology fellow grand round presentations, which will be given over the next month. Dr. Wasp does not have any financial interests. He will not be discussing off-label or investigational use of a product or device, and he's not receiving any direct payments from a commercial entity. Dr. Wasp is well known to many of us, having first arrived at Dartmouth in 2016 for his internal medicine residency after medical school at the State University of New York, Upstate Medical University in sunny Syracuse, New York. <laughs> Prior to that, he received his Bachelor's of Science from Bucknell University, where he graduated summa cum laude, and went on after residency to join our fellowship program in what year? 2019. No, he's graduated in 2019. <laughs> 2016. <laughs> Got a couple more yeah. to tell you. Damn. Um, it was clear to me as program director that when Garrett went to a Mastering Tough Conversations class in Boston last year, was that the beginning of this? Yeah. His, his life was really changed. He became very passionate about this topic. He sought funding and successfully received a grant to create a program for fellows and faculty on how to implement and provide serious illness conversations skills of communication, and it's, it's really become his passion. And we're th he's gone on to um, seek a Master's of Healthcare Delivery from the Dartmouth Institute as well, which starts this year. Yeah, yeah. August. So he'll be doing that while he joins our faculty and um, continues his excellent work on this topic. And we're thrilled that he's joining us. And without further ado, he will talk to us about his work. Thanks, Mary. Can you all hear me? Just want to make sure. Great. Um, so the title of today's talk is The Implementation and Impact of Serious Illness Communication Training for Hematology Oncology Fellows. As Mary said, I don't have any disclosures. Um, in terms of thanking um, people and organizations that provided funding for the work I'm going to talk about, um, the Advisory Council for Education um, here in the Department of Internal Medicine provided grant funding from 2018 to 2019 for this project. Tom Davis provided funding for our first faculty training. Um, Maxwell Virgos provided funding um, to help launch the second phase of this training. And the section has also provided some funding for that second. So thank you. Um, some acknowledgments for some tools that we use in this training, two organizations, Ariadne Labs and Vital Talk. I'll talk more about um, the tools that they developed, but credit where credit is due. All right, so the big picture of this talk um, really is we're discussing a single center implementation study in medical education and communication, um, the purpose of which um, was to improve communication, which is a worthy goal. Um, it was also served another purpose to kind of 
develop and hone some investigative skills, techniques um, of myself to try to learn to examine complex systems and how clinicians and patients um, communicate. Um, the, the broader goal of those skills is that I could apply them to figuring out how to develop interventions for support to better support both the clinicians and the patients uh, receive the information they, they need and for decisional support to kind of feed that back into the clinical setting. So I think it's important to talk about definitions because these words um, don't necessarily mean the same thing to everyone. So I just want to set the stage. When I say um, serious illness, um, part of it is a judgment and a perspective call. There are consensus definitions out in the literature that exist, high probability of mortality, significant symptom burden, significant caretaker um, burden. Um, but each of these kind of, there is a subjective quality of judgment that has to be made to this. For the purposes of this talk, I'm an oncologist. We're at Cancer Center Grand Rounds. You can sub in advanced cancer for serious illness here. The second definition that I think is um, worth defining, and it's probably a little easier than the first, is um, a serious illness conversation. These are kind of discussions about prognosis, treatment decisions, end-of-life care, social psychosocial concerns with seriously ill patients and their family. So wanted to start talking about kind of the significance of the area we're talking. So an important caveat is clinician perceptions don't equal patient values. Um, oftentimes when clinicians are asked to infer their patients' values, we get it wrong some of the time. Um, there's a large group of literature from shared decision-making that kind of proves this point. One example relevant to oncology is a survey of breast cancer oncologists who were um, evaluating patients for adjuvant chemotherapy. When surveyed, almost all of them um, said that patients valued life extension as their highest priority. In reality, just over half the patients did. Um, patients don't have accurate prognostic understanding a lot of the times. Patients with incurable cancer think their cancer may be curable. Some think they have years ahead when their odds are against that. In one study of advanced cancer patients who ended up dying, over a third of them did not think they were seriously or terminally ill. Per patient perceptions affect choices. Patients who believe they had less than six months left to live made different choices than those who felt they had more than six months to live. The group who were less than six months were less likely to choose life-extending therapies like CPR, intubation, or ICU care. Earlier conversations seem to help patients. We see um, these benefits in mental health, depression, anxiety scores, also bereavement outcomes for family and caregivers. A large majority of advanced cancer patients want their oncologists to have serious illness conversations with them. Um, unfortunately, many of these conversations ha happen late or don't incur occur at all. When the converse in one estimate, and when the conversations did happen, they were a meeting about 30 days before death. 
So the broad goals in this field are to kind of have more patients have these conversations and more of them. Have them earlier on in the patient's illness course. Um, better um, solicitation of patient preferences um, and more skill. A lot of oncologists cite insufficient training in communication as one barrier and documentation of these conversations, uh, ideally so that other clinicians who weren't physically present in that conversation can know what was said and what those values are. So this work has been challenging. It's, um, there are a lot of complexities. There's many different stakeholders. There's irreducible uncertainty in prognosticating and predictions for how people will do to therapy. People's goals change over time, and people in their lives are really complex. Fortunately, um, there is guideline-based evidence to help um, guide what can work in this. It's not to the level of evidence, say, first-line therapy for colorectal cancer, um, but these are kind of consensus opinions from experts based on the evidence that exists. Um, we ASCO published these guidelines. There's nine different sections. They're long. The section I'm going to talk about is the communication skills training. There are three big points where um, the focus should be on experiential learning, that for adult learners, they learn by doing. Um, the second was to foster practitioner self-awareness, so during conversations and after to kind of reflect on how the conversation went and facilitators of the training should be trained. Um, so our approach in our communication skills training was let's do guideline-based training. Let's follow the guidelines that are there. The second part is we wanted the training to be reproducible. So we used tools that were kind of widely available and practices that were um, out there. We wanted the training to be sustainable, this kind of meaning when after we trained it, there would be components of it that could still continue um, the, the training for the participants. And we wanted the outcomes to be measurable and ex essentially longitudinal, something we could measure over time. So a point why fellows as it. So the obvious um, is I was a fellow at the time and I was self-focused. This is what I want to do. But I think there's other um, advantages to this population. The first is it's what we're, we're supposed to be doing. Um, the ACGME has as one of its core competencies um, communication. This is valued by the field. And as I have a hypothesis that if you can impact physicians earlier on in their training, that the payoff may be larger because they have the rest of their um, practice it, ahead of them. So let's recap. We talked about the motivation behind this um, study. There's several kind of gaps in clinical practice right now with how um, patients with advanced cancer are having their goals of care met and communication. Um, we then talked about some evidence-based recommendations that exist from ASCO. And I talked about our project goals, that we kind of had those four components, um, that we wanted it to be guideline-based, reproducible, um, sustainable, 
And so our research question was, does our training improve documentation, confidence, and do we see maintenance in our simulated performance over time? So let's talk about the first tool, the Serious Illness Conversation Guide. I don't want you to have to try to read the guide on the right. The big point I want you to take away is that it's a script. So Ariadne Labs, um, they developed this with multiple stakeholders, patients, caregivers, various specialty clinicians um, over many iterations to kind of hone down the structure and the language of the guide. Um, point knowledge is power, I, and, and, structure, and structure in itself is knowledge. Um, I think a helpful example of this comes from scientific writing. Um, you know, journal articles, they have abstract introduction methods, a results section, and a, and a discussion. Each section follows its own in internal structure. The introduction, you know there's a significance. Then there's going to be evidence gaps before then you see the author's study purposes. Statistical analysis is always the last part of methods. The writers know where to put information, and the reader has expectations where to find it. Structuring conversations similarly improves information exchange. The five basic components to the structure are a setup. In the setup of the guide, um, you're raising what you're going to be talking about, and you ask the patient for permission to can talk about it. The second is you're assessing the patient's illness understanding and, they're, and asking them what prognostic information they want from you. The share is giving, making a prognostic disclosure to them. The explore section of the guide has kind of four questions they ask. You ask their goals. You, you ask what their fears and worries are, their sources of strength. And um, you ask critically um, abilities so critical to their function that they couldn't imagine living without. You ask them about critical trade-offs and then what their family knows about their values. And the last section of it is a close, where you say an alignment statement. I've heard that you've told me X is important, and then you make a recommendation. So let's do Y. So this is a tool we developed. Um, this is an EDH template, a way to document the conversation. So it uses the structure of the guide and it allows a clinician to document um, in the medical record this. The timeline of our intervention, so D stands for didactic sessions. The first didactic session was a four-hour um, session that involved kind of those evidence principles, skill practice, simulated patients, um, and was powered by the kind of vital talk teaching method. So um, the next part we did was we also did surveys um, where participants reported their confidence in communication. So before, while, when we talk about self-reported confidence, I want to be clear about what you can glean from that information. So this point is to say self-reported confidence does not equal performance. This trial, um, it was in medical students. They asked them their confidence, which is the, the x-axis in serious illness communication. The y-axis is real clinical patients' ratings of how these students did. 
as you can see, not, you can't really draw a line through that. <laughs> what I think confidence can help you tell is signal tolerability of the intervention. If, if your participants are feeling really a lot less confident, that could be a bad sign about how you're delivering it. There is evidence in adult learning um, literature to support that bring, eventually making people feel more confidence can be helpful in that process towards um, learning and gaining new skills. So this I, I want is a table. It, I've shortened it for display purposes to describe our survey results. So um, the column on the left is going to be our baseline results. Columns on the right are three months after that initial didactic session. So for the baseline survey, fellows were asked, I am confident in my ability to lead discussions on prognosis, solicit my patients' values as they return to treatment and their disease, solicit their fears and worries about the future, ask my patients' sources of strength and support, what their minimally acceptable quality of life is, um, what they would be willing to do for more gaining more time, ask them how much does their family know about their priorities, and conclude the conversation in a manner that makes a patient feel heard. So each dot represents um, a fellow's response. This um, was a five-point Likert scale, but there was, so there was actually a strongly disagree column. I just dropped that off because no one chose that for either thing. So these were the responses and as well. Kind of visually, you can see in the post, in the three months post, more fellows were saying they were more confident in these different um, domains of communication we were asking them. So the next part of our intervention were the simulations. So we had simulated patient encounters. The purpose of these was both skill reinforcement and an evaluation. Seven out of the eight fellows we trained did both um, encounters. How we had another project-specific tool we built for this. This was a um, checklist that one of the um, observers in the encounter would fill out. There were 16 elements um, directly related to the guide um, that they could score. One point if you completed something in the guide. And there were nine possible other associated skills. So you, you wouldn't expect everyone to use all nine in, a, in a, any given conversation. But some examples are respond therapeutically to resistance, paraphrasing or summarizing, wish, worry, or wonder statements, using and explore, is there anything else, verbalizing empathy, normalization of extremes, a teach back, responding to info and emotion cues, um, and exploring the meaning of words. An example in our case was, I don't want to be a burden. So if the um, participant again said, what do you mean when you say burden? That would have scored them a point. <clears throat> so these are the um, box and whisker plot of our guide scores. Remember, it's out of 16 points possible. The median scores at one and four months were at 13. So fellows are doing a majority of the guide-specific components. For the associated um, skills, we saw at four months that the median score was five versus three. 
so oh, I think I'm here feedback. The, the primary outcome of our intervention, however, was template use. So that EDH template I showed you earlier, we looked at the usage of that over 12 months. We also performed semi-structured interviews. Um, I'll talk a bit more about what these are later, but basically it was meant to get the participants' experience of being through the intervention and their clinical um, practice with serious illness communication. There was also a faculty component to this tra um, training. I'm not going to talk too much about it, just only in the ways that the two trainings, that this training intersected with the fellows training. Um, the goal of this was when I talked about the sustainability piece was to train coaches in the um, oncology setting that would continue to um, skill practice with the fellows. They had a longer didactic session, eight hours uh, as a one time. So let's talk about the primary outcome. Um, that was template use, the serious illness guide. And we had eight fellows who were trained. Two of the fellows graduated. Um, so they were not included in the 12-month use. Um, <laughs> So each of these icons, uh, the orange people, represents a documented um, conversation. So we had two fellows who had documented conversation, one 12, one one. So it's like, what happened? When it's, uh, so we had um, fellows agreed they were more confident. In simulation, they're doing a majority of the guide elements. Um, and at first it felt, are we just recapitulating results of medical education studies where, you know, confidence and skill use, they don't equal clinical practice. So I think this is where the fourth investigative tool, the semi-structured interviews, really kind of helped to figure out what was happening with the inter intervention. So a semi-structured interview is a technique used in qualitative research. Um, it has some um, features of a freewheeling interview, but is guided by a list of essential questions. So kind of in between a, a very structured survey and an unstructured conversation. Our interview guide was designed to elicit three basic topics. How guide use by the fellows what their perspectives on seriously ill patients, and um, the faculty coaching component of the intervention. So the analysis process was um, record, had six conversations, recorded them, went back to those recordings afterwards and analyzed them for theme and content, and a second team member listened to a portion of those conversations to triangulate the results. So what we learn from the fellows and the guide, so guide on the left. What is on the right is um, kind of a picture of what a typical vi uh, session powered by Vital Talk might look like. You have the learner participant on the left, the simulated patient in the center, and the facilitator on the right side, just to orient you. Um, so, all those interviewed reported some positive aspects of the training. And the strength of that impact varied widely. Some fellows reported minimal to no impact on their clinical practice. Others were enthusiastic adopters who felt it was very impactful. When discussing the guide, 
respondents reported improved patient preference elicitation as a benefit to the use. This could mean either efficiency, that it took less time or fewer words, or a more complete understanding of what the patient's values were. A majority reported the use of a script as helpful for leading a serious illness conversation. Barriers that um, our fellows listed to having serious illness conversations or using the guide. In order of frequencies, fellows cited time, remembering to have a conversation, concern about emotionally overwhelming the patient, patient perception of clinician reading from a script, and conflict with previously established practice um, patterns as barriers. And those were listed in frequency. These barriers fit with the experience of my trainers and other physician populations they've worked with. Typical use of the guide um, from our participants. Everyone reports um, using the guide at least one time out of classroom. Um, the documentation um, patterns really varied. One um, fellow was an exclusive template user. Two fellows described using free text documentation of their conversations. And then three fellows fell into a no documentation um, group. Most describe using it in the inpatient setting. Um, when described, let's see, mostly inpatient. And when, pa when, when fellows are having these conversations, um, so they're, they're do, there isn't faculty there, is what they're telling us. Um, and th there wasn't any of the, the coaching going on as well. So the other themes that emerged um, from these interviews was, um, so SI stands for serious illness definition. Um, Perceptions of serious illness varied. Um, there's kind, there was a continuum. On one end, um, fellows describing patients that are hours within days of dying um, to also another end where a patient with incurable cancer on first-line therapy and tolerating it well. Um, so everyone seemed to have agreement that at that one end, the hours to days was seriously ill but not necessarily to the other end of the spectrum. Some participants wanted more direction on the who they should have these conversations with. When we had um, done this intervention, we left it really open-ended um, because wanted, we weren't sure who the oncologists were going to view as seriously ill. Um, there was role conflict. Through the interviews that emerged, um, the fellows viewed their, their role as a, their own cancer physician. Higher priority was given to tasks of diagnosis, staging, treatment of cancer, in some instances explicitly stating that serious illness conversation was the domain of palliative care and not the primary responsibility of the treating cancer physician. Emotion seemed to emerge as um, an important theme for the group of fellows who were self-reported documenters. Um, that included recognizing emotion in patients and family, as well as um, the clinician's own emotion um, when having these conversations. 
This picture, I am told, is from the International Space Station, looking down at kind of New England area. I'm showing it because I want to kind of take a step back and look at some of the other work that's going on in our area to contextualize um, these results. So Ariadne Labs, the group that developed the guide, they recently published um, two partner articles. One, the one I'm showing here, is on the implementation part of their serious illness care effort. Um, so what they had done was they recruited cancer clinicians um, and gave them a two-and-a-half-hour training in the guide. Um, some of the system-based interventions that they used, they asked them a 12-month surprise question on patients they were going to see. Those who said yes, uh, or those whom they responded no, I would not be surprised if this patient died in the next 12 months, were potentially eligible for the intervention. And what I'm highlighting here is the actual use of that 12-month surprise question, that's a priming intervention. You're letting your clinicians thinking about serious illness and, and death. They received email reminders, and the day before they were due to see them in the clinic, they would um, get, the study staff would approach them. What I'm highlighting in red here is kind of the things they did differently than we had in our interventions. We did have a documentation template, and there was coaching. The coaching they described in their intervention was if the trained clinicians were felt uncomfortable, they could reach out to a palliative care provider or some of the other study members. The results that they found from their um, implementation effort was they saw in the intervention arm, they got more documentation, 96% versus 79. The conversations were earlier, um, 143 days versus 71. The median there is like 2.3 months. Um, Life-sustaining um, treatment preferences um, were much more likely to be documented, 63% of the time versus uh, 32. And um, the documentation had a much a higher focus on patient values. Um, so this next study, also from the Ariadne Labs, um, was they had a subset of those patients where they act, where everyone agreed to be video um, tape recorded for a conversation. So they had 25 conversations, uh, and they did a qualitative analysis on those 25 conversations. So what they found was that there is really a supportive dialogue between oncologists and patients. This doesn't surprise me, having trained in this field and this, is like there is good rapport between clinicians and their patients. They found patients were really open to discuss emotionally challenging topics. Patients also voiced a willingness to articulate their preferences for life-sustaining treatments. There was um, difficulty responding that clinicians exhibited responding to emotional or in big, ambiguous language. A quote from the paper is, um, so the clinician, we'll, mo we'll mostly focus today on you're in great shape, patient, right. Clinician, how can we keep you in great shape, patient? So I've been thinking of other inevitable as well, clinician. Okay, good, clinician moves on. As for point five, uh, there were challenges in discussing prognosis. 
Um, they found that in less than half the conversations, the clinicians disclosed prognosis. This patient, the paper goes on to explain only three, remember we had 25 conversations here, um, provided a time-based estimate of prognosis. Instead, clinicians commonly focused on future treatment often, options, often in relatively lengthy monologues containing highly medical language. So the takeaways um, for our project is, I think with system-based interventions, you can get more in earlier conversations. Um, clinician prognos prognostication seems an area that really needs more exploration, even from the, this larger body of work, there are difficulties here. And awareness and response to emotion seems to be important. So the next steps um, for our work of what we're planning to do um, in the next version of this is more system-based interventions. This includes um, priming something similar to like a 12-month surprise question or asking our participants um, who they think is an appropriate candidate to have the serious illness conversation guidance. Use of reminders. This idea of pre-commitment is so after the training you say, Choose a patient you're going to see in the next two weeks to have this conversation with. And competition. So sending out um, their performance versus kind of average performance of other people trained. Um, we want to integrate this training into a two-week palliative care elective so there can be more skills practice ongoing and do more work in exploring mechanisms of communication skill and documentation enactment. Um, for me, what I've been interested in is this idea of emotion regulation or affect regulation is another idea it goes by. It's an individual's ability to regulate their own emotions in response to a challenge. So some themes that had been emerging is Emotion seems really important, What the, an awareness of it and your own. And so I suspect that, or this is my hypothesis, that this could be affecting uptake. And so why we want to do some more exploration in that. I want to give thank yous um, for the time and effort from all the fellows, from the faculty who've helped us. And um, column on the right are individuals um, who've um, put intellectual effort into this as well. So I wanted to s stop and take questions, comments. Yeah. You did a follow-up look at three months after the initial scoring, and do you have any idea about durability if you looked again later on? That's a good question. So in our confidence, if we, if what happens after three months to our confidence? So I don't have survey answer for that. I have their semi-structured interviews were done like 14 months after. And so from, because I extrapolating from those results that there was a good subset of fellows who, who did feel it was impactful and they did feel more confident. So. I think some respond, I don't know what the results would do if I did a survey. So I don't know if the, the group of fellows who fell into the non-documenter group, if they would reflect back and, and feel less confident, or if those would, would still hold out. I, 
for the people who enacted the skills, I, I think it would still remain high. Good question. Yeah, John. Very nice. Have, have you thought about, um, you know, for future possibilities, extending this to the medical student, uh, you know, perspective um, earlier on that they get this maybe could even influence what fields they go into and things like that? That That's a good point. Um, so... Max and Max Virgo, Amelia Cullen, and two palliative care physicians that I collaborate with on this work, they do a, um, and I've helped teach a course with the medical students on communication training, and specifically it's responding to emotion. That's part of their um, fourth year curriculum, I believe. Um, your, your question reminded me, when we're actually rolling out um, this Second version, we're including medical residents um, as part of it, too. They do a palliative care elective in their second year um, as well. Um, as a research scientist, it, it's a larger N, a, a sample. Um, he, if I focus exclusively on fellows, I have a really small population. Um, but I think the idea that um, these results, these methods and training can be applied to beyond the hematology, oncology realm and other physician and other clinicians, nurse practitioners, um, physician's assistants, seems a good idea to me. Yeah. Um, this was so great. Thank you so much. Uh, so have you ever considered, um, like my experience has been that when we, you know, so much of what we do in hematology, we do as a team. And that I've had some really great interactions when it's the physician and a nurse or a nurse practitioner or whatever. And that's, you know, these are difficult conversations. And patients respond to different people on the team in different ways. And I think there is a lot of data about how patients are more likely to have these discussions with nurses. Um, and it just seems like it might be something to consider of having nurses and physicians do some of this work together. Yeah. And I just didn't know if that was something you guys had talked about and thought about. No, that, that's a really good idea. Um, as I, I, I think there is a lot of um, work and energy around um, how do you use the team best in, in um, taking care of patients, and we all bring different skill sets to the model. There's some literature uh, in the kind of palliative care saying, because they're kind of the leaders in this field, and they talk about um, the multi-specialty nature of palliative care and um, what the trials in palliative care that have shown the best benefits and kind of improvements seem to, what is palliative care there is that multi-specialty team, social workers, uh, clinicians. Or, so there's a, there's a lot of different components there. I think one, uh, I know, I think Amelia has been w working in some of her other works in um, social work um, to have them try parts of this conversation. Uh, a challenge, I think, to it is th that share part of the guide, the, the prognostication. Um, that you kind of see, you're, you're stuck a lot of times with the, the treating clinician needing to be the one for that disclose. I agree. I think the other parts of the conversation, the explore, um, can be done by other um, practitioners. If the patient doesn't, what the share does is it kind of sh shapes the, the field of what is now possible and what the patient can expect. And so if they don't have that understanding before they go into the, the explore, their goals might be wildly 
um, off from what they, they should be. So I think it's trying to figure out ways to um, use it. So it's a good point. I will think further. Matt? Jerry, can I answer that? Please. Um, so I think the, our pilot group recently also developed a video to educate folks on specifically splitting up and sharing parts of that guide um, with that in mind. And I agree with everything that Garrett said in terms of how it's split up. And um, so it's something that works for him, but I think it would be meaningful to other people in the field, not just doctors and MPs, but other people involved in the patient's care to participate in that, and also that it shares the workload and increases communication and collaboration. So yes, I think it's a great idea, and it's kind of, there's some things in the work. So it's, I think it's easy for early adapter, but how do you get it, you know, buy-in from the middle person? And also, I, have, I, you know, I know documentation is really important, mm -hmm. but again, we know this is moving target. You know, today I might say I don't want to be burdened, but you know, in next week I might say as long as I can alive, I can communicate with my family, I'm okay. Even bedridden situation, I'm beating to. And how do you? You know, try to capture these moving flooding component. Great question. Um, then there's two parts there. So the first, um, what do you do with the resistant learner um, or someone who's not anyone who's not an early enthusiastic adopter? And the second is goals are changing, and how does doc is documentation the thing you should be focusing on? So you know, for example, I want to eat hamburger. Today, but maybe not tomorrow. You know, maybe not. It's 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 a really good. So um, the so these are the big questions um, in the literature. Um, as for how do you motivate um, the non-enthusiastic patients um, learners? And I think what what I think part of the thing is to try to figure out reasons why. So the the semi-structured interview and. What I really learned from the participants seemed to be like, I had this idea of the intervention that since we wanted um, conversations earlier, that it should be an outpatient thing, that that should be the setting that they're trying to do it in. However, the fellows are telling me it's like, I really need this in the inpatient setting, and like this is where they're using it. So perhaps as a place to skill practice and learn, inpatient is where I should be. we should be focusing the coaching effort to, um, and ha it's, so part of it, I, th I think, the answer one is you need to explore the barriers. And, and people have been lo working on this, trying to improve serious illness communication for decades. And I think we need more work on the mechanisms of why people are willing to do it or unwilling to it. It's, it's, not, as, it's not like a lot of other um, challenges where you can um, – where people are complex, they're not just mach machines. And so I think our implementation work has kind of been failing us a bit um, in that side, that we need a better understanding of the mechanisms. To your second um, point, this is, and a lot of recent um, work has been trying to kind of, this idea of goal concordant care. Um, so are we delivering what um, our patients want us to deliver? And goals change over time. There have been some studies that have been uh, and recently published that 
when patients have stable goals, these types of interventions are working out. We're getting better documentation. But when their goals are changing, we're not seeing significant um, improvements. So that is very much one of these big challenges in, in how do you deal with um, re trying to find that is an open question. I think to return to the point, is documentation the right thing to be looking for in this? I ask myself that question a lot um, because when we saw, like, whether someone is effective in communicating in a serious illness conversation, documentation might not reflect that. Just because I said, like, this is what the patient told me or, like, it's the, it's the clinician's perspective on that communication exchange. So there's challenges. I think as a surrogate marker for if a conversation happened and if it's, it, it's useful and I think it moves us a step closer to something that is a patient-oriented outcome. A lot of the challenges in medical education literature is it's self-reported confidence in our, um, data and simulation data, which we know isn't the, the clinical environment. Tom. As you studied the field and done this work with patients and clinicians, what do you think the relative importance of having that format in the conversation, getting the information from the patient, as opposed to the therapeutic alliance building of sitting down with the patient and going over this heavy stuff? How, how, what's the relative contribution to the importance of the total clinician-patient? And, and I think the question that I'm hearing there is, um, so when, when I, in my own practice, when I use the guide, do I um, feel like I'm missing out on some of these other um, parts of kind of being more present with the patient? What I, my experience has been is, I find structure really helpful. Um, there, so I the the structure of the guide, I can know where I am and kind of an idea of where we should get. We can take tangents and detours when we need to to explore that, but when I because I think I have an awareness of my own emotions and sometimes it it feels like it's it's heavy in a lot and I don't want to necessarily be in that same emotional place. Having this structure and kind of, okay, I've at least kind of solicited some preferences, and now and we weren't able to figure out that. It's, it's allowed me to kind of better diagnose what, um, what I'm missing and kind of where the next work we have to go to. So I found it helpful in that sense, having the structure. Thanks. Please. So this year when you were working with us, it was like eight one-hour sessions. So we didn't. So this. So the work when we did this, this was um, 2018. So I trained all the fellows we had earlier. So the current first-year fellows haven't gone through the training. Um, so that. Got it. So the idea of the two-week elective. Um, so the, the idea is the two-week palliative care elective, they go on. That's when, when they're getting the training in the guide and practice. 
whether we would do the didactics. In my mind, I was thinking maybe three, and they'd be throughout the year on high-impact topics. And so either a lunch or a morning lecture. That's how we delivered those other six one-hour um, time slots. Thanks, guys.